Motivation and inspiration are powerful tools that change and influence perspectives, voices, and projects that shape the world. With all the negativity in the world, it can be hard to find those rare and beautiful stories that tell of inspired spiritual activism and individual healing journeys. Walk the path with me, Dr. Trish DeRocher, on the show Heart, Change, Consciousness, where we inspire listeners to take action towards a more just world. We'll hear from authors, change makers, influencers, activists, poets, filmmakers, and cultural workers who practice inspired spiritual activism and transform vulnerabilities into sources of strength. Heart Change Consciousness allows us to understand the world from different perspectives and highlights what is possible when we are fearless and open ourselves to our soul purpose and engage each other across boundaries. So let's self-heal and open the path to self-sovereignty. Heart Change Consciousness begins now. Hello, I am Dr. Trish DeRocher, and thank you for joining us today on Heart Change Consciousness, Inspired Activism as a Spiritual Path. Um, I am here with Dr. Reese Kelly today, and we are going to be talking about embodying our truth uh, and the importance of healing and transforming our bodies as well as our minds. Um, so I just want to introduce Reese. Uh, Dr. Reese Kelly, who uses he, him pronouns, is the CEO and founder of Embodied Values, a business that helps individuals, communities, and organizations heal and transform in order to better be aligned with their values. Reese provides intentionally and uniquely crafted services to his clients that include body work and massage, inclusive leadership, coaching and trainings, diversity, equity, and inclusion consulting, uh, and more. So he has 20 years of experience in higher education and most recently served as the Assistant Vice President of Student Affairs, Equity, and Inclusion at Champlain College. Reese identifies as a white, queer, neurotypical trans man born and raised in the middle class suburbs outside of Detroit. He is the product of public K through 12 education, a graduate of Colby College, and holds a master's and doctorate in sociology from SUNY Albany. The proud husband of a 13th generation Vermonter, Reese is a resident of St. Albans, Vermont, and a founding member of the local anti-racist organization Neighbors for a Safer St. Albans. And you can learn more about Reese and his work at embodiedvalues.com. Um, and there's a hyphen between embodied and values and embodiedvalues.com. So Reese and I are former academic colleagues uh, who have come to be friends after we both made our exit from that sphere. Um, and I'm so excited to welcome him on to Heart Change Consciousness today uh, so we can talk a little bit more about his work. So welcome, Reese. Oh, thank you so much, Trish. I'm really happy to be here and in conversation with you and also really happy to be a part of a project that you developed um, I think in some parallel uh, ways to how I've also left academia. So it's really a beautiful thing to be sharing this together. Yeah, I, I agree. And um, I want to hear and, and offer listeners so much on the intricacies of your work because I love how the pieces have come together and continue to come together for you. And I want to start with how 
we met because it's kind of a hilariously painful awkward story um <laughs> so before we we move in to hear more about the specific work that reese is doing with embodied values um i want to just kind of speak to the story to contextualize our um our relationship because i think it speaks to the challenges of alliance building um particularly in structures that limit our humanity and the ways in which we can really interact with each other so um, as I mentioned before, Reese was hired um, as an assistant vice president of student affairs, equity and inclusion uh, at a predominantly white institution in New England, where I was just beginning my third year as assistant professor of interdisciplinary studies. And so during the previous semester um, before Reese was hired, several BIPOC students, Black, Indigenous, people of color is what BIPOC means, um, had organized a well-attended and effective walkout that included a speak out and a list of demands asking administration for more resources and support for BIPOC students, which included hiring more BIPOC professors and staff. So as a student advocate, I had been closely following um, the student asks and how the college was and was not responding to them. Uh, so I attended the majority of job talks of, of interviews for Reese's position, uh, including Reese's own. And I wanna name that during Reese's talk, I was really impressed with his approach, his thoughtfulness, his ethos, um, including his referencing Resma Menachem's My Grandmother's Hands before it was on many people's radars, especially the, the radars of white-bodied folks. Um, and it gave me, at the same time, it gave me pause that the college had decided to go with a white-bodied candidate for the position uh, and what message that would send to BIPOC students after their organizing efforts. And I want to add that, that also because there was no communication about it, right? There was no kind of language or discourse. So after talking with some colleagues who also expressed concerns, I mustered up the courage to voice my apprehensions at a college-wide town hall at the start of the semester. Uh, and what I didn't know was that that, that was Reese's first day. Uh, my understanding was that Reese would be starting later. Uh, and so Reese was there. It was Reese's first day on the job. And that was our introduction to each other. Uh, so still, I felt it was important for Reese to kind of understand the landscape that he was walking into and for the administration to offer a thoughtful explanation about the hiring decision, uh, especially since a number of BIPOC student leaders had been tapped for the hiring committee. Um, so just after publicly voicing these concerns, uh, in Reese's presence, Reese's immediate supervisor formally introduced us and then informed Reese that he and I would be directly collaborating on a program together, which I'm sure was Reese's dream at that moment. <laughs> <laughs> so, so here we are, right? The semester has not even begun. And from Reese's first day on the job, he and I found each other like awkwardly inhabiting roles within this dysfunctional academic structure that really pitted us against each other on, based on artificial organizational divides, right? So faculty administration kind of, you know, in academia, it doesn't matter the institution. This is just kind of a, a larger pattern um, that really prevented us from being able to meaningfully connect despite parallel politics, commitments, trainings, and identities. So 
Um, while we were able to carefully build a rapport, including um, around during that program that, that we collaborated on, we still weren't able to fully express ourselves until we had both made our exits from that institutional structure. So um, I'm aware that this is my version of the events, Reese. Um, and so I'm wondering about this experience from your perspective um, and how this and parallel situations may have influenced your decision to leave your administrator role um, and to do your social justice work outside of the academic structure and, and more specifically in a structure that you actually get to create. Yeah, I, I can't stop giggling because it really, um, I guess I'll first name that I appreciate you bringing that up when we talked and also for us saying, yeah, we really should talk about this because, you know, work of the heart, work of change is not clean. It's not pretty. <laughs> it's awkward. Um, and we're also, I think, especially being a white-bodied person and being socialized white and living in this world, like I have um, little resilience to feedback, right? Like that's <laughs> the crux of white fragility is that I, we don't practice what this looks like, especially in public. We might practice it in private, but not in public. And, you know, you were both, you know, speaking truth to power in that moment, as well as um, really offering a kindness to everyone there and saying, hey, let's all remember why we're here and what's happening. Um, so I both could recognize um, having been in your shoes or similar shoes before, having done that side, you know, done this kind of work in other contexts, I could both appreciate and deeply understand the critical necessity for what you did and, and what you said. And also, I think there were a couple moments of it that stung me personally that I think weren't even kind of the priority of what you were saying. I think um, from remembering there were, one of the things that kind of stung, and we talked about this afterwards, so this is, um, you know, we were able to kind of unpack it, is there was this weird juxtaposition of bringing up the context in which there's little representation of BIPOC administrators, faculty, and staff, right? And also you were presenting feedback to the one queer woman of color cabinet member who is on stage introducing me, right? Like the, the kind of the, the, the irony of that needing to be said and also being said um, in a way that I think unintentionally and, and same thing happened with students doing this is that it really created some erasure of her identity and her role in that moment, right? Of saying, right. you know, she is the VP of this entire area. She's actually leading the institutional efforts in this. I'm not. And, and yet there was still kind of a call around that. And, you know, I had heard from her as well, moments of this feeling really invisibilizing and, and having my empathetic response to that in that moment. And there was also another piece when you were introducing yourself around being a parent of a trans child. And that was really triggering to me, having been in other venues, people kind of naming that part of their experience and making it comparable to my own experience as a trans person and me thinking, no, that's actually not comparable, right? It's, it's an important experience, but it's not the same thing as having the identity and the experiences I hold. So that there were weird things that stung that actually weren't kind of the overarching point that you were making. And I agreed with you. Um, 
You know, I, I think you bring up a really good point, which is in these institutions, there are these artificial barriers that are created very much either or, very much us or them, right? Your students or your administration, your faculty or your administration, you're with us or you're against us. And it really, one, it, it, it undermines our ability to develop community, right? Because I couldn't share things with you out of protection for my professional role out of my job. Likewise for you, um, I'm sure. And and yet we're in this community working together. It's this, it's a very bizarre circumstance. And it also really sets up the position of people doing diversity, equity, inclusion work um, to fail because you always are holding this tension. I was old, always holding this tension of um, having to fulfill my role within the organization, which was nuanced, it was multifaceted, um, and people wanted you to fix everything. You know, I was working in an environment where people with privileges they want you to absolve them of all their problematic behavior. They want you to hold their hand and say, it's okay. You know, that you, that you said the damaging thing to your colleague or student or that you've had really exclusive curriculum and you have people with minoritized identities wanting you to be the savior and quick fix. They want you to fix everything overnight. Um, when these are years in the making of cultural shifts that takes the entire community and everyone there to be a part of it. And I think that was, you know, part of why I really wanted to transition into a role that would break down some of these boundaries, would allow me to cross some of those boundaries, would allow me to bring other parts of myself, as well as just the fact that I was deeply burnt out. Um, you know, I, being in this kind of role within an organization, it's really lonely. Um, you are often, I was often scapegoated for institutional failures because I had, you know, diversity and equity in my title. It also wasn't my only job, right? But I became like the diversity professional. So anytime something went wrong, I, you know, you just, I just took hits. You take a lot of hits. You become the scapegoat for things. I had a lot of people in my community kicking sand at me, you know, telling me I wasn't queer enough. I mean, and yeah, I get it. You know, some of them are 20 years old, but some are 40 and 50 year old colleagues that um, were constantly kind of um, just making, making it a difficult place to work because it was a painful place to work and be for everyone who was there. And so leaving, I think I really wanted to do work that helped me feel like I can have direct impact on healing people and helping transformations on taking my skills and using them in a way that um, was following a mission that I got to direct and not one that, you know, the idea of organizations is to stand the test of time <laughs> and, and to really not change, you know, maybe evolve a little bit, but to not change. And, and I couldn't do that anymore. So yeah, that's a long-winded yeah. answer. No, I, I actually, um, the, the phrase diversity professional, I think just encapsulates so much um, because at least one of the things when I was really in that, um, that kind of structure and position, what it made me realize was that within these structures of power, which as you're saying, you know, these organizations, they're not just like set up to not change. They were actually set up to oppress and to keep yes. many of us doing, right, diversity, equity, inclusion work 
out, right? So mm -hmm. it becomes this like strange emotional labor where it doesn't even, um, it's like, the, you know, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. Um, but in where our, we're asked to kind of like wear our identities and um, as we kind of embody these structures of power, um, our, our identities, um, well, one, they become liabilities, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's like, you know, you can get this job because this is a sphere in which like you're designated that like you can do this work, um, but also on the personal level, right? It became really, really tricky because you can't have human conversations with each other talking about, you know, intersectional identities and, and the nuances and paradoxes of this work, which is really what would allow for the community building and the work to take place because these organizational structures limit what you can and cannot say. Absolutely. That, <laughs> that captures it. And, you know, I think um, in environments too, that people feel insecure in their employment. And I don't think it was, yeah as bad there as other places I've worked is that people feel like they don't have room to learn and grow. They feel like any opportunity where they admit wrongdoing or where they admit that they don't have what they need, that they might get fired. And that that doesn't foster a community where people can give each other feedback, where we feel like we can learn. And, and you're right, it just, it stifles the things that you and I wanted to do and why we were there in the first place, you know, as idealists thinking that that would be the environment where we would get to carry out kind of our, our passion projects. And, and it wasn't for me. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm thinking too about your language of, um, you know, just even how sometimes, um, you know, in um, marginalized groups, we you know, we kind of police each other, right? We can be even harder on each other and specifically thinking about the ways in which trauma gets played out. So um, I know I shared with you, you know, I identify as non-binary, you know, as a genderqueer professor, when I was doing some work around gender in the classroom, there were, um, you know, uh, gender non-conforming students who were kind of challenging me at every step of the way. And I was like, okay, I know that this is kind of pressing their trauma. And so just thinking about how trauma can get projected, right, organizationally yes. within communities, right, obviously that brings us to the importance of healing and not just individual healing, but collective healing. And um, your phrase for your, um, for your business embodied values is uh, heal your body, embody your values. So I want to talk a little bit more about that. Um, and so we have like this brief window into the type of work you do, but I'm hoping you can tell us more about your practice. Uh, I know from our conversations, you you talk about your work as um, as a bricolage, right? So like you joke, it can be confusing for your massage clients that you're also writing literature, you're also leading institutional diversity trainings, and you're also involved in organizing efforts. Um, and similar to my own work, your work really spans the, the micro, right? So the, like the individual healing work and the macro, so organizational collective work, um, as well as mind and body. So uh, Reese, I'd love if you can just uh, tell listeners again how to find out more about you and your work, um, and also just to describe your work with embodied values and how you came to do this work. So like, 
what's the journey that brought you here and and how do all of the pieces fit together and and do they fit together yeah i think a great place um our great starting place to learn more about the work i'm doing is on my website at embodied-values.com as trish mentioned there's a little hyphen between embodied values and i have i would say a, a blossoming uh, Instagram <laughs> up, um, account as well. That's not you know my prim primary venue, but I'm trying to bring more information on there as well. And you know, it, it is a bricolage. It is kind of a mosaic. And the way that I think about my work is that my focus is on using the skills and experiences and toolkit that I have to help bodies heal and transform. And we look at bodies as the individual, the human body level. We look at collective community level of a body and an organizational or structural body. And I know as a sociologist, you appreciate this. And I'm a sociologist in training that, you know, we can, it's, it's easy for me to see the connection between the macro and the micro. I'm really fascinated by the relationship between individuals and institutions. And I think not only am I trying to move beyond what are white western silos of that work right that you can't work on the body and the mind there's this differentiation between mind body and soul as if those things are not actually a whole part of our humanness and our humanity right there's a siloing of that professionally there's a siloing of it within research and practice and that leads to people not really making sense of why it is and how I am pulling these things together. And sometimes, you know, I don't use the same set of tools for each venue. I'm not using Swedish massage when I'm doing consulting work with organizations, but I'm using the lens of the body. I'm using the things that I've learned and it's bringing creativity to work I've been doing for 20 years within institutions and the institutional lens on inclusion, on transformation, on healing, on, how to um, how to provide um, uh, coaching and uh, counseling to an individual who's getting body work, right? Those things were really, I, I prepared for them without knowing I was preparing for them. So I see um, the connections and, and what it looks like in practice is that I do have um, services for coaching. I do have services for for body work and I do have services that I work primarily in partnership with Batista Consulting Service and um, Nanette Vega uh, Consulting, Educational Consulting Services. And together we're doing most of that organizational stuff with nonprofits, higher ed and, and hospitals right now. And the goal is to help these bodies from the individual to the organizational see the places where they're not aligning with their values, with their missions, and finding ways through that to heal and transform. So it it does make sense to me. I feel it. I feel pulled towards it. It brings me deep satisfaction. And I think our culture doesn't make room for the integration of things that it has very purposefully separated. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate um, just how you defined like the body, the different ways that you think about the body and just the idea that what kind of connects everything for you is the lens that you bring to it, right? And, and also your commitment, right? Like you are, right, like the, the consistent factor in all of the different modalities and scales and offerings that, that you're bringing. Um, 
And even to just kind of connect it back to that idea of talking about the structures and, and how these, you know, I, I really do think that like old systems and structures are crumbling. Um, and so to be able to do consulting and kind of the macro level view, um, uh, from outside of the structure. That was one of the reasons why I left was I could see very much that when you're in that structure, you're so confined, right? Like you have to be very aware of the role. There's there's something different you can do when you're outside of that structure. It's almost like offering a, a mirror, right? To be like, okay, I'm outside of the structure. This is what I'm seeing. And I'm going to kind of reflect that back to you. And in some ways, coaching is like that too, right? On, on the individual and, and micro scale. Um, yeah, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that, Reese. Yeah, I, I had a friend who used to say, you can't see the picture when you're in the frame. And I think that's part of it. I also think it's really dif difficult doing change making and transformation work within an organization that's really suffering, that really needs it, because I'm directly impacted by a culture that I'm trying to change. And that's not it's, it's not sustainable. There's very, very high turnover in these kind of roles, not just in higher education, but in corporate America and um, in nonprofits all over the place, because you're, you're trying to change something that doesn't already work for you. And that's, it's an uphill battle. Um, another thing I was thinking of was the connection for me is also something that's been simmering for many years. Uh, I, several years ago, um, you know, I think it was even before I read my grandmother's hands, I read um, Deep Diversity um, and, a, and a few other pieces that connected the dots for me of what I was seeing within my, my work within diversity, equity, inclusion, and within student affairs and higher education, which was, you know, we can't rely on our prefrontal cortex to, to, change, to change lives. We just can't. You know, I, I was like, how am I in these bastions of thinking that are so conservative, you know, that are, you know, how are people, how is this where things, knowledge is being created and yet people are not changing their behaviors or their attitudes. Some of them are very retrograde and, and there's no, there's very little self-awareness of that either. And um, the stuff that I was reading was showing me, we have to get better at social emotional learning. We have to get better at body awareness, connecting to the body, bodily healing, because when our bodies are activated, it is shutting down our thinking mind. And also our thinking mind doesn't actually help us change behaviors in the way that we want it to, right? We have to bring our body with us. We have to bring our values, our spirit, our, our sense of self, our heart with us. And often those are the things leading the way. It's not what we think about something. It is a felt sense of doing something wrong, right? Or doing something right or wanting going, oh, I, I need to make this better because it feels like, you know, there's this intuitive part of us as humans that I think we, I wanted to tap into more. I wanted to tap into the body, into, um, into our intuition, into our wisdom and figure out what that looks like professionally. And it eventually came together years down the road. Yeah. I, um, I really appreciate you talking about the intellectualization um, because in some ways I feel like Reese, you and I were kind of learning how to work or question or problematize white supremacist structures 
from the inside in real time. So that the, um, the program that Reese and I were working with, it was my first attempt within academia to really connect mind and body. So we were like doing breath work. We were doing some somatic coaching and, and scanning the body. And honestly, it felt really, really scary and transgressive for me to be doing that work in that sphere. And I was always kind of waiting for someone to be like, that's not okay. Like you can't do that, which, which, right. I mean, it's hilarious. It's, it's like, it's our work now, but there's not someone, you know, this kind of, um, gatekeeper telling us like, oh no, you can't do that. That, that goes too far. But, you know, you talked about binaries earlier, right. With like the us and them structure and also the separation of mind and body. These are like uh, tried and true tactics of white supremacist culture, right. To, you know, white bodied folks, it's, it's a form of, you know, dissociation or just like, you know, I don't have a body. I'm going to think about this all up here in my mind, but I don't really want to kind of get into the body to understand what's going on in there. Um, so Reese, I know that, um, you know, massage is one of the places where you're really going into right now. Um, you, you know, and I know that you feel really passionate about body work in particular. Um, and so I'm wondering um, how you understand uh, your identity as a white bodied queer trans man to be influencing the type of space that you hold for people, especially thinking about, um, you know, the lens that you hold, you know, when you said I, I had been preparing for this, right? Like you just didn't know. And I'm also wondering how your identity might influence your body work practice. So not just the containers you're holding, but your actual practice. Um, so for instance, I know, you know, it's true that you're in Vermont and Vermont is like generally recognized for being a, a queer friendly state. And you're also not in the most progressive parts of Vermont. Um, and so I'm wondering, you know, if there are kind of openings and assets and also challenges that you're finding doing this, this more embodied component of your work. Yeah, I, I'm so drawn to doing the body work portion of it right now. I like I, you know, I'm taking a test this Thursday on the lymphatic system. I mean, there, it, I'm just kind of swimming in all of this and um, not only am I nerding out around it, but there's also something that I knew would happen and it did when I started doing body work, which is that I am just uber present. I feel so deeply in my own body. I feel so sensitively connected to the other person that I'm working on that it does feel like a spiritual experience for me. And, and I, I am, I knew it would be like that. <laughs> I just, I had a sense, um, but now I'm feeling it. Every time after I give a massage, I just, I'm, I'm buoyed with the sense of joy of what I can bring to someone else and how tuned in, in I am and how it brings me back into my own body in ways that I want to be more in my own body. And, you know, you, um, you mentioned this and I think that, you know, I'll just say for, for the practice of the hands-on body work, um, I combine a variety of techniques, including Swedish massage, cupping, neuromuscular therapy, which is another way of saying deep tissue work. Um, and in a few months, I'll also be folding in to that Reiki, hydrotherapy, Thai massage, shiatsu, and reflexology. And so each of 
the massages are really curated for the therapeutic needs of the individual client utilizing this pretty wide um, tool set. So that's the, that's the practical application of it. And then the lens or really what I bring as a person is, I, I think it is a relatively unique experience being trans in this world, especially for me having had many years of disconnecting my mind from my body. And not all of that's trans. Some of that is following an academic passion where everyone around you lives in their mind, but also disconnecting mentally from not feeling um, that what I was working with was really me or what I wanted. And, you know, finding acceptance around that, finding beauty in my body. I've also... I think it was over a seven, no, over a nine year period, I had seven different surgeries related to my gender transition, ranging from, you know, being under for maybe one to two hours and having a couple days or weeks for recovery to one that was a 13 hour surgery in which I had months of recovery afterwards. So my body has really been put through the ringer, um, just related to my transition. And then I've also had things like chronic pain. I was an athlete in high school and had a lot of injuries. So there's a, a felt sense of the importance of the body for me is having one that um, does have different abilities and capacities that has gone through trauma, that has lived through trauma. Um, and I think that both having experienced that as well as being very active in the communities that I'm a part of as like I founded and started the Transgender Vermont Facebook group. Um, I'm a moderator um, on a um, F to M phalloplasty Facebook group. There are a lot of ways in which I've witnessed, observed, and been a facilitator, guide, and community member in this. That I've learned things like what language is helpful to, to say or to not, um, what to pay attention to. The realization that what I'm learning in massage school comes from a, a cisgender binary body framework that's not what bodies look like or how they are um to approach difference as just difference and not some freakish curiosity that i think a lot of people bring into it um, and i had a client recently um, who gave me really great feedback on creating a space that was gender and disability affirming for them and that felt like okay i'm i'm putting into practice these things that that i know that feel it just feels commonplace now because this has been my experience, but I've, I've watched a lot of people um, not, I think, appreciate the vulnerability that some people have with their bodies. Uh, and most people, I, you know, I think that maybe it's a, a falsity to think that some people are not invulnerable, but when someone is getting, you know, partially clothed or naked on your table, they have pain. That's a really important place where you have to be present, you have to be kind and open that any, I have to be um, aware of what I can offer, what my limitations are. There's just a lot of um, perception and awareness that goes on there that I, I think I have come to appreciate in ways that not everyone has, or even 10 years ago, I might not have understood and appreciated. Well, I, I really appreciate uh, you just talking about the the presence, right? That sense of presence, but also how doing this work, it, it's not just healing for the person on the table. It's also healing for us as practitioners, right? In many ways and, and unlearning and, and coming into a different relationship with our own bodies or asking, you know, what did I need and how can I offer that now? Um, 
And also just, you know, naming that it's a spiritual experience for you. So we're going to talk more about that when we come back. We're going to take a short break. Um, but when we come back, Reese is going to talk more specifically about how his spirituality does fit into this work and also some of Reese's anti-racist and queer affirming work um, that he's doing in St. Albans, Vermont. So please come back and join us on Heart Change Consciousness after the break. Come on. Patricia McNair, host of Divine Guidance with Patricia, and I'm here to help you live a more authentic, spiritually connected life. Join me every first and third Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Being who you are in everyday life is the key to unlocking soul wisdom within that our whole self already knows. Get ready to embrace your spiritual, mental, and emotional well-being, your whole being. Discover your gifts and strengthen your connection to spirit. We will explore earth guidance, divine truth, and love, past life lessons, and so much more. So listen in to Divine Guidance with Patricia and join in your personal adventure to triggering, opening, validating, and being all that you are. For more information about me, visit divineguidance.earth. Champion your life with me, Leanne Champion. First Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time on TransformationTalkRadio.com. That new gym membership might help you get fit, but what about emotional fitness? Jump into the rushing waters of personal growth. Don't waste another minute feeling unfulfilled. Visit ChampionYourLife.com and let's do this together. It's time to get your life back on Burn Bright Today with Jennifer Marcinelli. Tune in each month on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Learn to move from the darkness of burning out to the light of burning bright. Jennifer is redefining stress and the energetic causes of burnout, shining a light on process to get your life back. For more information about Jennifer and her work, visit BurnBrightToday.com. Tune in to The Truth is Funny with Colette Steffen each Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern on TransformationTalkRadio.com. This hit show will have you thinking outside the box and riding the wave of infinite potential. Join Colette on the Higher Self Network, inspiring listeners to shine their brilliance and ensure success while roaring with laughter as they recognize the humor of the giant cosmic joke. Visit TheTruthIsFunny.com. Join Jennifer Noel Taylor on the hit show Quantum Touch Radio, supercharging your life on TransformationTalkRadio.com. You'll take a quantum journey as well as reveal powerful yet simple steps to create more abundance, better health, emotional and mental vibrancy, and happier relationships using universal quantum touch principles. For more information, visit QuantumTouch.com. Healing has a ripple effect. One person's healing affects everyone around them. This is where the power of sharing our stories can be so important. Tune in to Playing on the Edge Radio with Megan Edge each month on Transformation Talk Radio as Megan provides you with ways of sustaining radical and powerful changes in your life. 
enact the power of radical change. To find out more about Megan Edge, visit her website at meganedge.ca. It takes courage just to breathe and feel all of this life. Hello, thanks for coming back to Heart Change Consciousness, Inspired Activism as a Spiritual Path. I'm your host, Dr. Trish DeRocher, um, and today I'm here with Dr. Reese Kelly of Embodied Values, Heal Your Body, Embody Your Values. Um, so we have been talking, um, you know, about how Reese comes to this work, learning a little bit more about um, the, the specifics of Reese's work with embodied values. Um, but I'm, I want to turn to more explicitly talk about the connection between spirituality and uh, the work that Reese is doing in embodied values. So, um, Reese, I, I'm wondering... Um, I remember like early on when we were getting to know each other and, and I, I've shared with you that just listening to um, this homily that you gave was actually a way in for me to be like, oh, here's a window into Reese's work. Um, I, I can really kind of see his ethos, how he's putting things together. And also like the, um, the vulnerability and the ability to get into the messiness and, and the places that kind of scare people. Um, so this was a homily you delivered a couple of years ago for a trans day of visibility at a Unitarian church in Vermont, I believe. Um, and your angle into this was kind of taking on the cult of niceness. Um, and in the, in your homily, you talk about niceness as a protective mechanism, um, through which dominant groups or, or groups that have more social power remain comfortable, right? Are able to remain comfortable with social difference without really needing to, uh, interrogate are there, right? Depending on the identities that we're talking about, um, complicities within these structures of oppression. And so you, you end up differentiating niceness from kindness in here in a really effective way, I think. And so um, in your talk, you really parallel, uh, you draw parallels between white and cisgender or uh, cisgender being um, the gender identity of the person identifying, uh, lining up with the sex they were assigned at birth. Um, and using this tactic to maintain comfort in privilege um, and how this perpetuates racial and gender inequality. So, of course, I freaking love you're in a church and you're like taking on structures of power and you're not just taking on, um, you know, uh, transphobia, right? You are using an intersectional lens to draw parallels between different powers, uh, different structures of oppression. Um, but it also right, made me curious about the link between your social justice work and spirituality. And so from that point on, I was like, ooh, I want to know more. Um, and you, know, you just named that your work with embodied values and, and the body work specifically is very spiritual for you. So I'm wondering if you can just speak to more about how your spirituality impacts the work you're doing with embodied values um, and in the relationships and the kind of um, containers that you create for your clients clients. Yeah, I, I was shaking when I gave that homily. I, if you listen closely, you can hear, um, you can hear my nervousness in there. I think at some point I kind of hit my stride and, and stayed in there of, 
I don't know, it was 10 minutes. I was probably eight minutes in where I started to feel comfortable, but I, I, I was so compelled by that article um, by Robin D'Angelo in The Guardian that I read about how us white people are hiding behind niceness and how we're really weaponizing it and using it as a way to, um, to sustain the status quo, which is white supremacy. Right. So for me to acknowledge that what I thought were really positive attributes are behaviors that maintain white supremacy shook me to my core. Absolutely. And I remember when I was in graduate school. So in the early 2000s, Leslie Feinberg was coming to campus to speak at SUNY Albany. And I was so excited because this was the only like trans role model I had where there was a, you know, Stone Butch Blues was a big thing. And I remember going and all they talked about, and I say all, because at that time I was like, what is happening? They talked about labor unions and workers' rights. Mm. And I had no idea what was going on <laughs> because I went there to hear about trans politics, right? I went there to see someone who I could see my own image in. And it was brilliant because what Leslie did was talk about what was the most pressing social issue to them at that time. And it wasn't actually about their gender identity. And, and so for me, I always, um, it took me several years before I realized the brilliance of it. I just felt, you know, betrayed by this icon, not talking about trans issues and realized that I need to use the things that get me in the door to talk about pressing social issues of our time. And, and I also do want to represent and make them about trans stuff if that's what I'm being invited to talk about, but it will never only just be about that. So I wanted to um, to talk about whiteness, to show the parallels. And at that time in, in which I was processing it, the vulnerability I could bring and the deeper portion of it was also related to, um, to my transness and my experiences of having people think they were being nice to me when it you know, it's like death by a thousand paper cuts every day. Um, and I've since, um, a couple of weeks ago, I've been a part of this local organization called Neighbors for a Safer St. Albans. I'm a founding member of it. I'm in what is really a collective of leaders. And we put on this, what we call a um, community rally for togetherness. And it was in response to having anti-critical race theory activists come into our city hall and doing a talk there. So we thought, okay, we're not going to engage with them. We're going to create something out of love. We're going to create something that is community building and family friendly and educational. And so we created this event and I spoke at it and I teased out those portions around the kindness and politeness and niceness and, and really got to focus on race this time. Because for me, this is almost two years later, I've been doing more work around my own internalized uh, racism. Since then, I, I've learned that my family were slaveholders in Missouri, which I did not learn about until my late 30s. Um, I had done a lot more um, of self-education on fa my family history of whiteness, and I was able to bring that in. Um, same theme, though. I, I live in Vermont. We, <laughs> Everyone here thinks they're so much more progressive than they are and in myself included is that we don't I think being such a deeply white state we do not have a mirror held up to us enough to reflect that we are not doing what we think we're doing 
Um, we get to look at other white people in our echo chamber and give each other hurrahs because of who we voted for or, you know, what frame we used on our Facebook profile rather than digging into the nitty gritty and the dirty. And so for me, being able to speak in public, to be vulnerable, to openly process what I'm going through in a public setting is inviting other people to be on this path with me. It's looking at other white people being like, you know, are we, this is what we're doing, right? We're doing this. Like it, it gets to be this kind of, yeah, yeah, we're doing this. Okay, what do we do differently? Let's be in this together because I've relied so much on, um, I've exploited Black, uh, Indigenous, and people of color colleagues and friends trying to process this with them because at a deep level, what I know is I'm trying to assuage my own racial anxiety and discomfort by processing with them rather than going to white people and saying, I actually need to be here and process this with you. I need your emotional labor helping us figure this out together, not just looking to someone to tell me I'm okay. And that, I think, is on my path to spiritual form of reparations. At least I'm on the path of that. It is not the same thing as some of the practical reparations around finances, although that is something that I've engaged with as well. But it is, I, I need to... I need to make this world a better place than the one, than the way I've treated it as a white person. I need to undo a lot of the things that I've done and help others come on this path with me. Um, and it's possible. And I need to do it while being afraid. I need to do it while being vulnerable. And I need other people to do that with me. And I'll, I'll just give, um, uh, Trish had mentioned this and I, I wore this, but forgot about it. And I could see it in my reflection. I. I have a shirt that I, I sell through my website that says white fragility is not permanent. And Trish and I were kind of laughing because white fragility is itself a contested concept. Uh, Robin D'Angelo who coined it is also a contested academic in that she has said things that decades of BIPOC scholars have said, and she is making you know her name and a lot of money off of it. Um, and what is important to me, I think is the concept that my, physical um, and my my reaction to being told that what I've done or said is uh, is ist, right? Is racist, is sexist, is any of those things that my disproportionate reaction to objective truth-telling feedback, that white fragility, I can actually address that. <laughs> like, like that actually, like I don't have to live with that forever. I know that there's this kind of fear of, okay, we learned about white fragility and then what do we do about it? But that's the beautiful thing about spiritual, energetic, and somatic work that we can do through breathing, through massage, through, um, you know, energetic healing, that we can start to change our physical reactions to social stimulus. I can hear that and go, oh yeah, and let me do something different. I can have a different reaction instead of living in the fear of living in the fear of having fear in those interactions and thus avoiding what I need to do to grow and be a better person in this world. Um, so that's where I'm kind of pulling everything together of feeling like this is not just a spiritual path and the physical connection with others, but of, of reparations for um, my own behaviors, the behaviors of, of my ancestors and, and my legacy and that, and where the structural and the personal all come together. Yeah. yeah. And I, I really like that idea. You know, I think about the idea of energetic reparations, but just naming spiritual reparations, you know, one of, uh, 
one of my favorite memes is just like, so Blaine is just, you know, dismantling white supremacy is a spiritual issue, right? Period. It just is. And, um, you know, thinking about, again, the, the, the body, capital, capital B body, right? Collective body and, you know, lowercase b body. That's such an academic thing to say and differentiate, but um, right. That, that, that's what we're doing as we heal ourselves, as we come back, um, you know, everyone, but especially white bodied folks in this moment to our bodies um, to really reckon with the history, right? Like this is a moment of reckoning um, that we are, again, if, if we think about um, in spirit realm, linear chronological time doesn't exist. The ancestors are here with us now, right? There's not like past, present, future that um, as, as uh, white folks heal, right? And, and look at the anxieties, or I liked what you said about like the fear preventing from stepping into fear, right? Of, of, you know, being called out of, of having to change, of having to see ourselves differently. Um, I feel like that's, that's really, really powerful. That's really important. And Reese, what I appreciate, um, I think one of the many things I appreciate about you is the idea that there's no exceptionalism, right? Like the, the being able to go into those, those scary places and actually, um, by sharing, right, the, the anxiety, the messiness, or being scared and doing it anyway, it's actually providing a, a form of modeling for other white body folks to be like, and you can do this too. Mm -hmm. I'm scared and I'm doing it and still, you know, um, and I, I'm still showing up to do it imperfectly. I'm going to mess up. Um, and, and that's part of it too, but that, that is just the, the commitment, that vulnerability and understanding, um, it being a form of spiritual reparations is really powerful for folks to see. Um, Reese, we are almost out of time somehow. I really, really enjoyed our conversation today. Um, I'm, I'm wondering um, if you can just kind of remind listeners how to get more involved with you and your work um, and just leaving us with any parting words of wisdom, any, any kind of things that you didn't get a chance to say yet that you want to, you want to get in before our time runs out. Oh boy. I wish I, I like have nothing to say and everything to say. This is whenever I'm with you, I'm, I'm always actively processing in the moment. So none of this is, you know, canned. Um, and I'm so appreciative of that. I think you helped me really um, connect with and talk about the things that I'm deeply passionate about that I am actively changing my life to pursue, to be, um, to be a better person. As cliche as it sounds, I really, I want to do better. I want to be better. And I want to heal myself and help others be on that path with me. Um, for folks who are really interested in, who are local and who are interested in the in-person bodywork component of that, you can email me at reese at embodied uh, like hyphen values.com. So it's reese at and the name of my website, embodied uh, hyphen values.com. Thank you for tuning in to Heart Change Consciousness on transformationtalkradio.com with me, Dr. Trish DeRocher. Make sure to come back next time so we can continue to awaken your soul purpose. Look forward to more conversations with your favorite authors, change makers, influencers, activists, and many more who practice inspired spiritual activism and transform vulnerabilities into sources of strength. For more information about me and transformative consciousness coaching, 
visit transformativeconsciousness.com. That's transformativeconsciousness.com. This was Heart Change Consciousness on TransformationTalkRadio.com.